is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, before we get into today's content, just wanted to let you know, just in case you didn't already know, I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2018. So if you want me to come and speak to your church, your staff, your men's group, your Sunday school, your team, your camp, uh, I'm booking all those things right now. So if you would, reach out to me at info at undaunted.life, info at undaunted.life, and I can kind of talk to you a little bit more about the types of content that I present and things like that. But you can expect it to be a lot like what you hear here on the podcast. So today's podcast, we are going to do another Q&A. So this is our third installment of the Q&A podcast. I'm, again, guys, I'm never really at a... I mean, I'm never really at a loss whenever you guys send me questions. I get a lot of really, really good questions. So in future episodes, I'm going to try to do a Q&A episode every, you know, four podcasts or five podcasts or so just to keep the uh, content live. But also there's certain things that I get asked that, you know, don't really warrant an entire podcast episode, but it's still something that you guys are wondering about, uh, something that I can give an opinion or a philosophy on. So I'll continue to do that. But just respond to any of the social media posts. It doesn't even have to be uh, something that you uh, are responding to that's like specifically meant for that post, but just respond on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or something like that with your questions, or you can send them to me again at info at undaunted.life. And I'm going to try to work in as many of those as I can. I get a lot of questions from you guys, but I try to work in the ones that I think would be the most, uh, I guess, readily accessible for all of you and for me to be able to give a good answer to. So without further ado, let's get into the first question for this episode. Let's see what we got. Okay. What message would you put on a billboard? So I thought that was, this was a pretty good question. Like when you think about it, you drive by, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of billboards in a week, depending upon where you live. And there's all kinds of messages on there. There's some billboards that have way too many words and you can't really read anything. So the messaging completely misses you, or it's just a picture and you kind of get the deal with the picture. But after thinking about it for a while, the thing that I was going to put on there is just this. And it's in big words, you're not a good man. And that's it. And then I may put the, you know, www.undaunted.life. So maybe it would drive guys to our content, but you're not a good man because we hear this a lot. And we typically hear this about someone that's maybe older age, or maybe even someone who's just passed away that, man, he was, he was just a good man or, or someone that you really admire in your life. It's just, man, that's, that's, you're just really a good man. But I feel like even us, and I'm not going to talk about society as a whole, but even us, that our standards are almost too low for what makes a good man, right? Uh, that, you know, it really doesn't take a whole lot. Like what did he, did he pay all his bills on time? Did he, you know, show up to church every week? Uh, you know, did he do his job, you know, at, at a good clip that made him a good man. And, and again, if we, if we look at it in terms of how we look at scripture and how Jesus even looks at sin, I mean, really none of us can call ourselves a good man. But I think the, the thing too here is a lot of us think too highly of ourselves. Like we really, really do. And, and we even buy into the fact that, man, I, you know, I'm a good man. You know, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't raped anybody, you know, all the normal things. But it's just like you think of yourself as a good man. And th- the thing about it is, is I feel like once you get settled into the f- to this idea that you are a good man, that it kind of breeds this, you know, malaise that kind of comes over your life. And you don't think you really need to keep going and striving for better and for greatness. And so in, in our context, it's Christ-likeness, right? You're not really striving for that. You're not really going out for that. So, um, and again, you know, it's kind of a bold statement. You're not a good man, but uh, I think for a lot of guys, it's just like, you know, be a work in progress, like be working towards that end. And again, we all know guys that even from a, you know, a secular point of view would be like, ah, that's a bad dude. Like that's just not really a good person. Right. But, you know, I think that would get people's attention. Um, 
uh, people that have maybe kind of gotten comfortable with where they're at in their lives and may shake them up just a little bit. So next question, it is, what is your end game? So obviously I think this guy's thinking this in terms of the, the ministry, right? Undaunted life. What is the end game here? You know, what is, what is my goal with all the stuff that we're doing now? If you go back to episode one of this podcast, I kind of go into detail. I think that's only about a 20 minute episode, 20, 25 minutes, but I kind of give you an overview of why undaunted life is even here. And so within that podcast, you're going to get a lot of that same content. You're going to get an idea as to why we're doing this, why we're going to continue to do this, who we're going after. So if you want more of an elongated answer, that would probably be the best place to go. But just in general terms, men have to be better. Like we have to be better. We're losing in so many areas of society. And, and I talk about this at nauseum in other episodes, and even I'll just kind of drop in different ideas, but the epidemic of fatherlessness, this epidemic of, you know, you know, even societally, not even knowing what men, a man is or a woman is right now. And you got the boy scouts that aren't the boy scouts anymore. They're just the scouts, right? And you got all this confusion and, and part of it is men are just allowing it to happen and men have to be better. And so if men have to be better, the other thing I would say is the church has to be better. And I mean the capital C church, not your church in your hometown necessarily, but the entire modern day church in the West, we have to be better. And the the thing about it is I don't think that the church will change from the inside. I I mean, I just don't think that the church is going to change itself. I mean, just think about, um, for you, do you normally try to resist change? Maybe if it's at work or in your family or just changes to your house or those types of things. For a lot of us, change is kind of something that just creates a lot of anxiety and we try to get away from that as much as possible. So if you're a church that's doing well and you're just humming along and things are just going hunky-dory as far as you can tell, why are you going to rock the boat? Like, why, why would you rock the boat? Why would you piss off, you know, 70, 75% of the people that are in your church, the women that are volunteering for everything and basically keeping everything afloat? That, that number is probably a little bit high, but you kind of get the point. And, and so the thing about it is, is I think a, a massive change in society is going to come from within the church. Right. And so I mean, secular society and, and people that are non-believers, I think that you're going to see a revolution of, of thought and a revolution of attitude. And I think that's going to come from within the church. However, like I just said, I don't think the church is going to do it on their own. I think it's going to require a hostile takeover. And, and no, I'm not saying get all your friends together, get pitchforks and start running into your church and, you know, knock out all the pastors or anything like that. Although it may be kind of fun to watch, but, but anyway, I think that's really what it's going to take. I don't think the pastors are going to be leading the charge here, guys, unfortunately. I mean, you know, they, they've got to, you know, take care of the flock and the overwhelming majority of the flock is now female. And so they're going to continue to cater to that audience. It's going to take guys within the church demanding things of their pastors. I talk about that a lot. Demand more from your pastor. Demand that they talk about these things. Demand that they direct the flock in a way that is biblical. Like as a member of the church, you're able to step up and do that. So again, to get back to the original question, what's my end game? It's to change the church from the inside. And that starts with all of you guys that are listening to this podcast right now. Share this podcast, not just this episode, but this entire podcast. Share our content, share our devotionals, share with guys that are like-minded or guys that need to be woken up a little bit. Like that's how it's going to have to happen. You create these little pockets of influence within your church and you're going to be able to have a massive effect. Just think about the, you know, strength begets strength, right? And I've talked about before on other podcasts of how men like to follow other strong men. 
That's why you see th these great military heroes have such huge followings even long after their deaths, right? And so uh, that that's my encouragement to all of you is to be part of that resistance. Be a part of the hostile takeover that it's going to take for the church and for men overall to get better. All right, so let's go to the next question here. How slash why do you take your knowledge in one part of your life and relate it to the others? Are they relatable? And the examples he gave here was masculinity and church or exercise and politics slash modern culture. So those are a couple of different examples, but you know, that's kind of two questions, right? So there was the how side of it, and then there's the why side of it. So, so how do you take your knowledge in one part of your life and relate it to others? I mean, the thing about it, guys, is if you can kind of take your life on the ground level and then kind of come out to the, you know, the 30,000 foot view, we live in a crazy interconnected world. And I don't mean in like a, you know, avatar, hook your ponytail to a tree type of a way, but like, Everything is connected and the lessons that we can learn in life are very, very related to one another. So it's like, it's like this almost always is connected to that, I guess would be a way of saying it. So like this and that can be things and they are connected. But the thing is, is you can take lessons that you learned from this and apply it to that, right? So, so let's just look at the examples I gave. So masculinity and the church. So you can take lessons of how you were able to apply masculinity in a certain part of your life and then bring it into the church. So think about if you've gone through a rite of passage. I know I'm kind of obsessed with rites of passage uh, and having that for young boys. Think about if you were on a masculine journey from your dad, but your dad wasn't necessarily like a believer, but he took you on this journey. And think about how you can relate that within the church. If you're helping in a youth ministry capacity or with teen ministries or singles ministries or men's ministries, those are things that you can look at. Okay. So let's look at exercise and then let's look at politics, right? So something that you've learned from exercise, like sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you work, you're not going to have the body of somebody that, you know, has way better genetics than you. I'm just kind of making an example up off the top of my head. But then the same thing in politics is you can do everything right. You can pull all the right strings. You can pay off all the right people. You can do whatever you need to do. And you still may not win the election, you know, i.e. Hillary Clinton. But I mean, that's just kind of one of those things is like you could do everything that you need to do and you can have a buffoon on the other side of the ticket and it just may not work out for you. Right. And so there's, there's corollaries between all parts of life. So that's kind of the, the how part is you just make sure you log that in your brain so that you can recall it later and assist in other ways. Right. And so, so the why part of it is guys, really the only way that we get better is if we can leverage good for ourselves and for those around us. And so I'm using the collective we here that like we get, uh, we getting better, like all of us getting better at the same time. You have to be able to leverage yourself in order to create that for other people. The ways that you can do that, kind of going back to the how, is if you're interconnected in your understanding of how things relate to one another and the things that you're able to learn from different pockets of society. You don't want to have your brain siloed where, you know, the things that you, you know, I guess some other examples would be like school and work. So think about how you took things in class, right? When you were working on a group project and even 10 later in the job, 10 years later, when you're working an actual job, like the things that you learn then are applicable at the current moment, like the things that you're trying to go through. Uh, think about it in terms of, you know, a, a relationship with a difficult coworker and parenting of a child, right? Those are two separate things. 
But just think about how you have to work through a situation and love somebody in a work environment, and you're trying to do the same thing while you're parenting a child. So even as frustrated as you get and as much as you want to just like go nuts on this little kid, you have to find other ways to get them to understand that there are issues in terms of you know how you react, how they react, and how you're all going to end up getting better, right? So uh, that's really kind of the how and the why on that in terms of my perspective. All right, next question. I know a Christian that swears. Did Jesus drop the F-bomb? Okay, so uh, I guess there's kind of two issues here within this question. And so the latter one, did Jesus drop the F-bomb? I mean, no. Like, there, there's no indication, obviously, in the New Testament, uh, you know, revelations of his life and, and the things that were written down uh, in his life um, that he ever used foul language like that. So, no, that's that's ridiculous. And what we get in terms of an understanding of his life is that he wouldn't do that. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But let's, let's go back to the first part. Is like, I know a Christian that swears. Okay, this is kind of a weird thing for me. This is kind of like one of my, one of my, a bothersome issue for me, I guess. So this is seemingly an epidemic with men, right? So just look at men in general with, with no classes, no breaking them down into different socioeconomic statuses or backgrounds or believer, non-believer men just kind of do this. They use foul language. They, uh, you know, talk dirty. They, they say, you know, off color jokes and different things like that, but it's definitely an epidemic within Christian circles as well, right? And and so think about it. I'm sure all of you can think of somebody, and you may be that somebody, that when they're in church, it's all blessings and raising their hand, you know, while they're singing Hillsong and all that. But then when they're outside of church, it's just, it's a different ball game. They use a different set of language when they're watching the ball game. You know what I mean? And here's the other thing about this is no one really seems to care. Like, I kind of feel like I'm on an island by myself. I got to admit, most of my Christian guy friends use foul language. Like, it, they they just do. And, and they don't really care about it. And the other guys around them don't really seem to care. Or if they do, they're certainly not expressing it. It seems like it's almost like a rite of passage of sorts. Like, okay, now I am X years old, so I can use these words without any, any repercussions. Um, and here's the other thing, guys, is I've even seen lead pastors of churches in my area, like big churches in my area that do this and do this on a routine basis. And that is use foul language. Right. And I've kind of talked with them about it. I've talked with other guys that have talked with them about it. And the thing that they cited as the reason why they do that is they claim that it helped them connect with non-believers. Like as in it helped them, you know, seem more authentic, which I understand the argument. It's just a really stupid argument. Right. Okay. So uh, if, if they're into like cocaine, are you going to like snort a line with them? Like if they drink to excess and get blackout drunk every weekend, are you going to go get blackout drunk with them just to show them, you know, how much you're like them? If they, you know, swing on their wife, are you going to take the next swat at her? Like, I, do, I just don't really understand that. It's just really, really bad argumentation to to say that. Um, even one of my good buddies, like I brought this up, we were, we were having a drink um, and a cigar and we were just kind of chatting with one another. And, you know, I kind of brought this up how I thought it was really inappropriate that he used such bad language so casually. And it was specifically at an undaunted life retreat that we had. Um, you know, I basically said, guys, we're going to control our tongues while we're out here. We're, we're not going to say any, any language, any, that, that would be of condemnation to our brothers. We're not going to use foul language. We're not going to do that while we're out here. And pretty much as soon as I was done talking, he said, you know, a bad word in front of everybody where everybody could hear it. And it was almost like he was challenging uh, the authority of the event and different things like that. And so I kind of brought it up to him and confronted him about it. And he got really, really angry about it. Like I I was coming down uh, to him like in this really judgmental manner. And that's really not the way I came at him. It's just like, how do you think that this is okay? 
How do you think that this is appropriate? And it was clear in his mind that he was completely justified in how he acted, that the vulgarity that he uses in his normal everyday language was completely okay. And, and so the thing is, is, is you have to go to scripture here and guys, you can find dozens and dozens of different scriptures on this, but I'm really going to narrow it to three that I think are incredibly helpful for us. Um, and again, guys, I'm talking to myself here as well, right? So I'm not like a casual uh, cursor or swear. It's not really something that I do like in casual conversation just to kind of fit in. But I'll be honest with you, like when I'm, when I'm driving and somebody's not driving in a way that I think is appropriate, like I, I don't always have the, the greatest reactions. Like if I stub my toe or you go get tapped out in jujitsu or different things like that, you know, I'm not sitting here trying to say I'm a choir boy, but it is something that we should work towards having a certain level of purity. So the three scriptures that I found, the first one was Colossians 3, 8. I'm just going to blow right through these, these three and then talk about them. So the first, Colossians 3.8, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And the last, these are Jesus's words as recorded in Matthew 12 verses 36 through 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak for by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. So, so again, guys, just to reiterate, I'm not holding myself above the fray here. This is something that I have to deal with as well, but it's very clear here, you know, in in the, in the scriptures that we get from Paul, from his letters, but also the words of Jesus, that even if you have a different view of obscenity, right? So some guys think certain words are obscene and some are not. Some guys think some words are curse words and some are not. The the Bible doesn't provide us a comprehensive list, right? That's not things that we see. But Jesus says every careless word they speak. So just think about it. If, if you let something slip out casually or you say a bad joke or you get angry at somebody and you call them a name or, or you use swear words in traffic, again, I'm talking to myself here just as much as I'm talking to you. Those are careless words, guys. Like it's just careless and it's also just ignorant. I remember uh, back in a time I used to work in Manhattan. I used to work for Major League Baseball and I was uh, kind of confronted in a social setting. There, there was a guy that worked for Major League Baseball. He was kind of a tool and he just always looked for, he, he was always kind of looking for opportunities to make embarrass people in social settings. And so I guess I was the, the guy that was up at this particular moment. And so I'd been working there four or five months. This was during the 2012 season. And, you know, in a casual kind of social setting with a bunch of other MLB employees, he was like, yeah, I've never really heard you cuss. What's the deal with that? And, you know, I was kind of taken aback by it because we weren't exactly talking about that. And my response to him was pretty simple. I said, well, I mean, if you have to resort to cussing, it shows that you don't really have a, a dominance of the human language, right? Or the English language, not the human language. Like that, you know, if you have to resort to those words, it's like you literally didn't have anything else you could say. There was not another phrase, you know, rattling around in your brain that you could just, you know, say at that moment. And I also said that in, there's a lot of social settings where you know, there are people in that social setting. It tends to be a lot of women that are uncomfortable with that language. And I said, it's almost, you know, beholden to you that you need to be at least say something and just say, Hey, you know, you know, maybe this isn't the right setting to talk like that. And he probably just thought, you know, oh, this crazy Oklahoma simpleton, or what does he know about anything? But you know, the, the story didn't change there that, you know, it's very careless to speak in a way that could cause death. Now, now again, that may seem fairly extreme, but some people think, oh, if I'm just using, you know, swear words or cuss words in just kind of normal everyday conversation or just busting my buddy's balls or doing whatever like that, it's not really hurting anybody. But 
again, you're not just, it's not just the words that could hurt others. It's hurting yourself as well. Like you're going to have to give an account for how you've treated people, but also how you've treated yourself and the things that you've done. So again, this is, I kind of spent quite a bit of time on this one issue, but I really think that's something that all of us need to think about and talk about because I've talked to way too many people that are in vocational ministry that think this is okay, but they can't really give a good reason why. They can't really point to a scriptural anything and say, oh, well, that's not really the way it is. Or, oh, you know, Christians in Europe, they they drink and smoke and, you know, cuss all the time and it's no big deal. It's a cultural thing. It's really not. I mean, when you start making the cultural argument, you're really skating on thin ice at that point. So, all right, we'll hop off that question. We'll get to the next one. What was the most influential book you ever read? Why and how did it impact you? Okay, guys, uh, this, I really got to give two answers to this, uh, and they're really significant and influential to me for different reasons. And I think I've talked about these a couple of different times, and I'll probably end up doing full podcasts on both of these at some point, because these two books are not only the most impactful and influential books that I've ever read, but they're also the books that I gift the most often. So I like to, to gift books to people that I, I think are amenable to the, the content that's within that book. So, and both of these books are obviously on our book list. That's on our website, the hundred books that every modern Christian man should read. So it's just undaunted.life backslash book list. The first is a book called Fearless by Eric Blim. So uh, the book Fearless is about a Navy SEAL named Adam Brown, and he's a deceased Navy SEAL. That's not really a spoiler uh, of any kind, Uh, but this was a biography that was written by Eric Blim based on the commentary and stories of, you know, his surviving friends and family. And it was just an unbelievable account of someone's life and his ability to overcome. And and really, he, this story of this guy really led in a lot of ways to what we even talk about in Undaunted. Because the things that he overcomes to become a member of SEAL Team 6 is absolutely astonishing. If you have not read that book, I cannot recommend another book on the planet higher than that one. Again, Fearless by Eric Blim. Um Again, I don't want to speak too much on it because I, I'm probably going to do an episode here within the, the coming months just on this episode, just on this guy, but just an incredible, incredible life. Like it's, it's one of those things when you read certain biographies, you think, you know, how much is this tall tale or, you know, how much of this has been passed down and we don't really know. It just seems to be real. And, and I know a guy pretty well that was, you know, actually uh, worked with this guy in the SEALs and they worked very closely with one another. That's about all I can say about it. But, uh, all these stories are just true. Just incredible, incredible book. I just got to tell you guys, and that's one you should just read. Like I know a lot of you guys do, do eBooks and things like that, or or not eBooks, but audio books. Um, this is one you really should read. You should really let the content of that book kind of wash over you and just let, you know, chew on it for a day after you've read a couple of chapters or something like that. And guys, I'll be honest with you. I'm not much of an emotional guy. I don't really cry a whole lot. I'm like a once or twice a year type of crier. And it's, it's gotta be something pretty, pretty outstanding. I've read this book twice. I'm going to read it for a third time. And each time I get to the end where this guy dies, it's like, it's uncontrollable. It's like, I can't like stop being upset. Like it's just an incredible, incredible story. Have I sold this book enough to you guys yet? Okay. All right. Let's move on. So that's the first book. I did mention that I was going to talk about too. The other is Reason for God by Tim Keller. 
Okay. So if you haven't heard Tim Keller, he's a pastor out of New York City. He's uh, had a Presbyterian church in Manhattan for a lot of years. I think it's over 20 years or something like that. And at the at the time that he moved there, people were like, why are you going to open up a Presbyterian church in New York City? It's like one of the least Christian places on the planet. And it's just like, you know, he just went up there and did it. But this guy is so deep and so thoughtful. Uh, he's been called by some to be the modern day uh, C.S. Lewis, which I'm not sure you could get a much higher compliment as a pastor. But this is a book that looks at the top seven arguments for why God could not exist, right? So one thing that he did, I don't know if he, he still does that at his church, so I'm not really familiar, but um, he would stay after his sermons and he would talk to people and he would go over their objections. And again, he's in New York City. So it's a very left-leaning, very secular, very materialist, you know, evolutionary biology type culture, right? Um, and he would literally answer people's questions about, you know, why God couldn't exist, how the story of Jesus is absurd, you know, virgin birth and all, all the whole nine yards and Old Testament stories and blah, blah, blah. And so he basically brought all those things down and kind of distilled them down into the seven biggest arguments as to why God could not possibly exist. Okay. That's the first part of the book. But then the last part of the book are the seven biggest arguments as to why it is reasonable to believe that God does exist. Right. And inherently that Jesus is his son. Right. And so it's just a very well laid out book right? It, it's just incredibly well done and very well thought out. There are very, very few scriptural references in this book. And I'm saying that as a positive. I think that's a positive because if you're a non-believer, if you're an atheist or an agnostic or, uh, you know, you believe in another religion and you read the, you read this book and if it's just basically proof texting using the Bible, if you already think the Bible is horse crap, then you're not really going to believe anything that's said, right? You're not really going to go along with, with the things that are being said by Tim Keller. So he appeals to reason. Again, the, the name of the book is Reason for God, the reason for God. Like he's appealing to to reason and, you know, cognitive thought, like really deep cognitive thinking. And so it's it's just a really well done book, but it's it's something that every time you read it, and I think I've read it three times now because I've gone through it with some some other guys, that you get a little bit deeper and you find something that was like, oh man, like there's just these nuggets in there that can just send you down a rabbit hole. You know, I've, I've read through this book with uh, a couple of young guys and one guy in particular that's a good buddy of mine that's, you know, stuck somewhere between atheist and agnostic. And this book, you know, we just read a chapter or two a week and then we came together and ate lunch and talked about it. It provides a great primer for that type of conversation. So this is a book that I think is very giftable for you as well. After you read it, send it to guys that are skeptics in your life. Like what? Again, you're not like going to hold them down at Chick-fil-A and like, you know, pour holy water on them as you're going over this book. Like you're just talking about it. And, and I've sent this book to a guy and he read it. He was like, nah, I didn't really, didn't really think it was that good. And this guy's an atheist. And it's like, you know, it is what it is, but at least, you know, enter into that conversation, kind of go in that direction. So again, the two most influential books I've ever read. Number one is Fearless by Eric Blem. And the second is The Reason for God by Tim Keller. Pick those up. Cannot recommend those more highly. Okay. Next question. How do you explain the love of God as a father to men who didn't have a father or their experience with their father was a negative one? You know, either they were abusive, angry, an addict in a way that makes God appealing to them. I think this is a really fantastic question. And uh, I think the guy that sent it in, you know, you can almost tell within the question that maybe he has some issues there. Maybe there's uh, some father wounds there. So uh, I'll certainly be uh, cognizant of that as I answer. But here's the thing. I'll just talk about my dad first. My dad is freaking awesome. I love my dad. Like my dad is my biggest fan. 
and biggest support. Like if I'm feeling down and feeling like I'm really struggling at this whole life thing and I'm just kind of sucking it up, I can just call my dad and I don't even have, even have to say anything. And he just busts out with how, how proud he is of me and you know, how, how much he likes what I'm doing and how interested he is in the things going on in my life. And I I think that's really, really awesome to have. Um, This is a a man who, uh, you know, kind of worked his work schedule. He worked at a factory his entire life and and still works there. Um, He worked his schedule to make sure he didn't just not only miss not any of my baseball games, but in my early childhood, he didn't even miss any of my practices. Like this man was at all of my practices. And, you know, he wasn't the helicopter dad, you know, trying to, you know, get with the coach or trying to get me more playing time or running out on the field and trying to tell me, stand this way, swing the bat that way. He he was just there. He was just present. Like, I remember one time I hit a walk-off home run in ninth grade. I had a really good ninth grade uh, team, you know, playing for the school and we were undefeated. And this was a game against a crosstown rival. And I hit a walk-off grand, I think it was a grand slam actually, but a, a walk-off home run. And I remember my dad was parked. Uh, he parked his truck out in uh, right center field beyond this, beyond the uh, fence. And he was watching from there. He was like sitting on the hood of his truck, you know, watching his boy play ball. I remember coming around first base and I'm like jacked, right? Because, you know, I'm still at that point when you get a hold of a ball, you don't really know if it's going over or not. So I'm like sprinting to first base. And finally, when I see the left fielder turn around and, and realize the ball is gone, I look out at my dad and he is flipping out. Like he's like jumping up and down on his truck. I thought he was going to fall off of his truck. He was just going so crazy. So I kind of say all that to say that I really, really love my dad. My dad and I have a great relationship, but my dad's not perfect. Like he was never abusive to me or anyone else in our family. Um, you know, he wasn't an addict. He wasn't an alcoholic or a drug addict or anything like that. But you know, he, he did kind of have his angry spells. Like I could see how he wouldn't be the most approachable and most loving guy. Like I can see some of those things. I can see the flaws in his personality, the flaws in, you know, his worldview and in his thinking. Like I get it. Like, you know, he's one half of a failed marriage. You know, he and my mom, they didn't really try to save their marriage. It just kind of is what it is. Uh, and there's a lot of things that kind of go on with that. But the the point I guess I'm trying to make here is that no matter how good your dad is, he was not a perfect father, Right. Like, and I know guys that have good dads, just, I mean, all around superstar, you know, Captain America type dads, right? And this is out in the public and behind closed doors, just super solid in every way possible, but they are certainly not perfect dads. They are not at all. And I certainly know guys as well that have the other side of the issue. You know, they don't know who their dads are. They never met their dad. Their dad just bounced when they were younger. They didn't really give a crap about him, right? Or, you know, they were so unlucky that their dad actually stuck around. He was just such a piece of, you know, human excrement that he just, you know, gave him all the worst parts of humanity as a father, right? Didn't protect him, uh, didn't try to help him, didn't, you know, father them towards manhood, any of those things. But the reality is, guys, is that God is a perfect father. He is like, he's the perfect father. And so I I think the best way to answer this question is to point those things out because this is a story that everybody can get behind. Like, you know, basically if you've had a good dad or a bad dad or somewhere in between, he wasn't perfect, but our God is perfect and he knows about us. And I was, as I was thinking through my answer to this question, a couple in quotes in Matthew uh, came to me and these were both by Jesus. So the first one's in Matthew six, verse 26, and that's look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And the next one was Matthew 7, uh, and this is verses 9 through 11. This is, again, Jesus. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? 
or if he ask for a fish, will give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I think these are very, very important things when we think about the concept of a father, because our fathers will always let us down, right? But let, let's say you even live this, you know, super, you know, leave it to beaver lifestyle with your family and you go through your whole life and your dad really never lets you down. He's going to die. Right. You know, if, if we all live to our, our normal uh, ages, you know, your dad's going to die before you do. That's going to let you down. You're going to have a question for your dad and he won't be there. I mean, my dad lost his dad when he was 13, got hit by a drunk driver. So during the most formative years of his life, he didn't have his dad. Like, that's a disappointment. Like, it wasn't his dad's choice. He didn't choose to get hit by a drunk driver and die that night. But, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. It's just kind of how it goes. But that's the thing that I would talk about whenever you're talking to people that have those issues with their dad is it's just like, dude, it's okay. Like, it's okay, man. Like, you're, you're one of many. But you are unique and you are special. And you're worth something, even if your dad didn't think so. All right, guys, let's go on to the next question. What makes a man a man? Okay, so... That's a pretty straightforward question. I guess I should have uh, expected that this one was coming. And this is something that you hear talked about a lot. So you hear this talked about in non-believing circles, believing circles. Uh, there's certain podcasts, I think, where there's this guy that asked that at the end of his podcast of all of his guests, you know, you know, uh, what does it mean to be a man? That's kind of what he asked at the end of one of his podcasts. And normally people think of the caricatures of modern manhood. We talk about those a lot. You know, the four-wheel drive trucks and chasing women and drinking drinking beer and doing all those crazy things. But in terms of our definition, so for Undaunted Life, a man is someone that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. That's it. That's it, guys. Keep it simple. A man is someone that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. Because that is freaking hard. <laughs> like, these are not easy things to do. Guys, we have so many issues. There's issues in culture. There's, you know, we, again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, society can't even tell us what a man is anymore. Like is a boy, a boy, or, you know, at the age of three, can it, he pretend he's a girl or think he's a girl or those different things. There's so much craziness going on. And then you have all these caricatures of horrible manhood. You have people looking up to these morons in Hollywood or their favorite team or something like that. And it's just like, these aren't guys that are going for it in multiple areas. They're just awesome at one thing that you also think is awesome. Right, but are they cultivating spiritual resilience? Are they seeking after things in the spiritual realm? Are they fighting on the front lines of spiritual warfare? Like mentally, are they striving for better? Are they trying to make themselves better? Are they trying to have a deeper understanding of where they're at in the in the universe? Right? How about physical resilience? You've seen a lot of guys that, you know, like we talk about all the time, they're they're spiritually adept, you know, mentally strong, but they couldn't sprint to the end of the block to save their life or or someone else's life. They're, they're not really working towards anything in those areas. And so that's something that I think is really, really important is everyone's got their own definition of manhood. Every men's ministry out there has their own definition. Every book that you read on manhood, whether secular or otherwise, they've got their own definition, right? I'm not saying theirs are wrong and I'm not saying mine's right or anything like that. It's just kind of how it goes. Like in, in, in terms of how we look at it, a man is someone that cultivates spiritual, mental, and physical resilience daily. That's really all it is there. Okay. Moving on to the next question. Why should we care about the Bible and Christ? Aren't we called to be nice and accepting of everyone? So I, I think what this guy's trying to get out of this is, you know, why do we spend so much time worrying about the Bible and Christ if, if all we're called to do is just be nice? So uh, the scripture that kind of that came here, and I bring this up a lot, but again, it's John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Okay. 
So guys, here's the reality. I know that people have issues with the Bible. Most of the people that have issues with the Bible have no idea how the Bible even got here, right? They, they have no idea how the Bible got to 2018. They, they don't know how it was transcribed. They don't know how it was maintained. They don't know how it was originally written down. They don't know anything about it, right? And then if you don't believe in the Bible, you're certainly not going to believe in Christ. Christ is just basically the purple spaghetti monster in the sky that, you know, basically rains down blessings if you give enough money to church, right? That's what they, that's what they think. But we are called to be nice and accepting, right? But we are not called to do is to be accepting of sin, right? So uh, again, I think it's an important concept to talk about in terms of grace and truth that Jesus was 100% both. I've talked about this a lot, but if you've missed other episodes, most people think that Jesus was like 50% grace and 50% truth. That's not how it was. It was not that type of a breakdown. And he wasn't 70% grace in some situations where he was 30% truth. No, no, no. He was 100% grace and 100% truth. This is an incredible thing for us to realize, right? It, it's it's really, really good exegesis for us to understand what is going on in the scripture, okay? And so, Yes, we should care a lot about the Bible, right? It gives us everything that we know uh, about Christ and about the things that went on in, in these moments that are so integral to our faith. But just being nice and being accepting of everyone does nothing. It's it's popcorn muscles. Like, it's, it's not real, right? So So you get to the end of your life and you were just nice to everybody and you accepted everything. But just think about how useless that was. So, so let's break it down to a, an easy example. Let's just say um, diet, right? So you're just accepting of every diet, every diet out there. So let's say for you, the best diet you could possibly be on was, you know, Atkins, like the Atkins style diet. But you know, you're, you're okay with vegans and you're okay with vegetarians and you're okay with people doing keto and you're okay with people doing high carb, low carb. You're okay with people doing carnivore diet. You're okay with all these different things like that. That's really stupid. Like there is a, there is an answer to what is best for you and what will help you run at the most optimal level within your diet. Like that's obviously the best way to do it. But how much more important is that when it comes to your worldview, like how you view the world and the people in it and and your relationship to those people, right? So this idea that we just should just be nice and be accepting, just smile as we watch people go towards damnation. No, like get out of here, man. That's ridiculous. So uh, yes, care about the Bible and care about Christ. Those are obviously big things, but this idea that we just need to walk around being zombie like nice guys, like get the heck out of here. That's terrible. Next question. Men don't like to admit fault or live in accountability. Is there an effective way to reach transparency with brothers you are living life with or doing life with? Yeah. Here's the thing, guys, is guys that won't admit fault, it's a pride issue. And, you know, as I'm saying this, I'm saying this to myself, I get it. But if you're not admitting fault, you've got a pride thing going on. And then if you have guys that won't live in accountability, that's a cowardice thing right? A a guy that avoids accountability at work or in social settings or in their home life or in their relationships elsewhere, in their friendships and family and all those different things. It's just cowardly. You know, they're going to try to make it seem like, oh, you know, I'm, I don't need somebody telling me what to do. I can, I can take care of myself and I can pull it up on my bootstraps, but it's just like, that's all just bravado. Like it's just posturing. Like it's just, it's just not real. Right. So, but, but the question here was, is there an effective way to, to reach transparency with brothers. And, and the answer is clearly yes, but it's incredibly uncomfortable like for them and for you. Right. 
So, so here's the thing, like my experience with accountability is I've been a part of a bunch of different accountability groups. So when I was a single guy, as a married guy, even, even now, um, and it's all kind of been different depending upon the crew that you're with. But the thing with accountability is everyone has to be dedicated to the process, right? I, I had this group of guys, we called ourselves the warriors or something like that. I think we were in our early twenties, but even some of the guys in the group were in their, their teen years and if you brought something to the group, like, Hey guys, I want to stop looking at porn or our guys, I want to, I want to stop cussing or, you know, I just, you know, I feel like I've been lazy at work. I want to fix that. Like if you brought it in and you said it to everybody, you had better be prepared to actually go through with it because the consequences were bad <laughs> if you didn't. Right. So there was much more of a being scared of the stick as opposed to going towards the carrot thing, if you guys know what I mean. And so, uh, I've had accountability that way. I've had guys that were just way more cerebral. So, and just how they talked with you, uh, that's kind of how they did their accountability. But the thing is, is everyone has to be dedicated to the process or you're not going to have accountability because you just can't force accountability on other men. Like you just have to show them that it has value. Like, just think about it. Like, have you ever tried to talk to somebody that was like really, really overweight? Like, and you were like trying to convince them not to be so fat and terrible, like convince them that they're going to die early. Like that may have an impact on them, but it's not your decision. Like they have to decide to start taking care of themselves. They have to decide to stop, you know, put down the Twinkies and the Kit Kats, pick up some kale and go for a run. You know what I mean? Like those, those are things that they had to, they had to choose for themselves. The same is true with accountability. Like there are a lot of guys that I wish I could have an impact on from an accountability standpoint, but they don't want to be held accountable. So there's not a whole lot I can do other than show them that, Hey, I'm a guy that lives in accountability and here's how I'm progressing in these very, very important areas. Hey, I'm a guy that's living in accountability with, with my wife. And so this is the transparent, the transparency that we have in our relationship. Hey, I'm in a you know group of Christian men that will call us out on our crap and, you know, snatch us up by our shirt and, you know, tell us when we're doing wrong, right? You need those guys. Some guys just don't want that. You know, that's just, just kind of how it goes. So what exactly are we supposed to do? So do what you can, uh, to impact your brothers around you, but, and to show a good example, but you know, if they're not going to be, uh, willing to be dedicated to the process of accountability, it's just not going to work out. Next question. Jesus sums the law up into two points. Question. How well do you love yourself? So obviously this person's uh, making mention of what Jesus says in Matthew 22. So I'm going to go ahead and read Matthew 22 verses 34 through 40. It starts out without Jesus's words and then he'll, uh, he'll come right in. So here we go. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, guys, I'm, I'm not going to go into like the, the incredible importance of this because this is one of the most commonly referenced uh, scriptures really in, in all the Bible. Like go to any church really of any denomination, you're going you're gonna to hear about this because this was a one-part answer looking for, or a one-part question looking for a one-part answer. And Jesus obviously gave them two. And you know, the part is he says, and the second is like it. That means it's equal to it, right? So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind, but also, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Those are equal in Jesus's eyes. So that's equal within the triune. But, but uh, what's interesting about the question is how the question was typed out to me was like this. How well do you love yourself? So that's how it was typed, but how I read it was, how do you love yourself well, initially? 
And so when I went back and reread the question, I was like, oh, shoot, I made a mistake. But I, I think it's interesting to kind of look at it from both, from both sides. So how do you love yourself well? And how well do you love yourself? So how do you love yourself well? Again, I'll go back to our definition of what is a man. You know, uh, someone who loves himself well is someone who cultivates manly resilience, right? Spiritual, mental, and physical resilience and toughness, like a guy that does that. That's how you love yourself well. Because if you're challenging yourself spiritually and if you're getting on the front lines of the spiritual realm, like that's that's good love. That's good love for yourself, right? Mentally, if, if you're reading uh, opinion pieces and books and listening to podcasts that are challenging your point of view or helping you learn about things that you're interested in, man, you're making yourself better. You are loving yourself, man. You're loving your mind. And physically, I, I don't talk about that enough on this podcast. I, I need to do that more. But uh, physically, like you need to take care of yourself. It affects every bit of your health like your mental health, physical health, clearly. And so taking care of your body is loving yourself, like allowing yourself to recover, but also pushing yourself. But then the next part is how well do you love yourself? So this is obviously a little bit more personal. So I had to look at, you know, how do I love myself? So Kyle, how do you love yourself? And here's the thing, guys, just in all honesty, like I'm, I'm a harsh critic, right? I have a very critical bend in my personality and it's been really, really helpful for me in my career. It's been helpful for me every time that I develop content, whether it's this podcast or a devotional or something like that. I'm, I'm kind of shrewd and, and I want to make sure that things are airtight. I want to make sure that things are good. If things can be better, I want to make them better. So sometimes I have to make sure I don't just wait for something to be 100% done before I launch it. Like I just got to get it good to where it's good enough and then go with it. Right. Um, but I'm a very harsh critic and, and the worst, the thing I'm most critical of is myself. So uh, a lot of times I had already ripped myself a new one before my coach got a chance to, right? I was already, you know, getting on myself for, for, you know, missing that ball or, or for, you know, not getting the pin or not getting the choker or whatever the thing was. Like I'm already working on my own brain, right? So the, the thing is, is I allow Satan into my head sometimes, right? And I think we all do that, but I'll, I'll just talk about me. And you hear those things in your brain. You know, those things that say, ah, oh, you suck. Like, you're not good enough. Like, uh, you're just not doing a good job. Like, why are you even doing this? Like, you should quit. You should do something else. You should just take the day off. You should just do all these different things. And the thing is, is for all of you guys, and you may have never heard this before. I can't remember where I heard this first concept. Well, actually, I think it was uh, Bill Hybels. Is that, yeah, I think uh, he, he was talking about this uh, on a sermon that I heard. Is basically like, that's a whisper. And you can tell where the whisper is coming from because you just put it through the filter of, would Jesus be saying this to me? So if, if you just, you know, struck out in beer league softball and you're going back to the dugout because that's, that is actually pretty embarrassing if you strike out in beer league softball, but to digress a little bit and you're just like ripping yourself up and then you hear this thing in your head. It's like, yeah, man, you're terrible at softball, but you're also terrible at life. You're not a good father. You're not a good husband. You know, you're, you're just not good at anything. You should probably end it. You know, you shouldn't come back and play and you know, your life's just pretty much worthless. Just think about all those different things. Is that something that Jesus would say to you? Like, again, he's full of grace and truth. So, but do you think that's how he would word it? You think that's how he would say that to you? Like telling you, oh man, you know, you, you think you should pray for somebody and you think you should bring it up in a social setting, you know, that you're going to pray for somebody. And you got that voice in your head that says, man, don't say that. That That's weird. That's, that's actually really strange. Like you're already not making too many friends here. Why would you keep that going? Okay. So just think about where that comes from. So how well do you love yourself? I would say for me, if, if I had to give myself a, a, a one through 10, I think I'm doing well, you know, cultivating uh, mental and physical resilience, but sometimes I struggle in the spiritual realm. You know, I think I've talked about before, I don't really have the most robust prayer life. It's one of the, it's just kind of like foreign to me a little bit. And so, uh, but I think that's important for all of us to realize is to kind of do a self check. 
like, you know, when I was asked this question, and again, I read it wrong. <laughs> Maybe I'm not, you know, cultivating as much mental resilience as I think I am, but I like read it wrong, but it was helpful. Right. Cause I kind of had to do a mental check to be like, man, am I really loving myself right now? You know, I'm, I'm really fit and I'm in, I'm in good shape. So I feel like physically I'm loving myself, but man, there's some other areas where, you know, maybe I have some blind spots. So I think that's good for all of us to kind of do some checkups from time to time. Next question. How do you manage the addictive dopamine rush you receive from social media and other distractions that consume the people of our generation? I think this is a good question. Kind of change of uh, change of pace here, change of uh, subject matter. And here's the thing, guys, is I kind of succumb to this, right? I check my social media way more than I should. So, you know, I, I got Facebook, I have Twitter and I have Instagram. I don't really mess with anything else. And, you know, Instagram, you know, there's a lot of, I follow a really, a lot of really cool people, um, you know, with my personal Instagram, but also the, the ministries Instagram. And so there's a lot of really awesome things that go out there. There's some funny stuff, some good sports stuff. Uh, you know, I kind of get my news, uh, at least just kind of the keep up with the, the headlines from Twitter and Facebook is kind of how I stay connected with people that are in my network. Uh, I guess LinkedIn, if, if you consider that I'm on that as well, but mainly for work purposes. But the thing is, is I succumb to it guys and, and, uh, it's just, it's one of those things like before I go to bed, I know you're supposed to get rid of, of screen time right before bed. So you can more easily fall asleep, but you know, I'm just checking, you know, it's FOMO. You have fear of missing out. You don't want to miss it. But the, the one thing that's interesting is my wife and I have actually done quite a bit of, um, uh, international travel. And normally when we travel internationally, like, you know, our phones won't work. Like we don't get the international plan. And there's a lot of times where we don't even need it. So our phones are just off and they're in our suitcases. And the thing that's interesting about it is after like, halfway through the first day without my phone, I, I really don't miss it like at all. Like it, it's kind of weird that it's not in my pocket because normally I can just reach right in there and boom, there it is right in my pocket, but it doesn't really bother me that much. And it, there's not this anxiety of, oh, I, I can't get, wait to get back on American soil so I can turn my phone on and hear all those ding, 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 like hear all those notifications. Like that's not what it is. So it, I feel like to a certain degree, I don't get those withdrawals that some people do. Like if they drop their phone in the toilet or they break it or something like that, or it gets stolen, like they are literally like flipping out and they can't really like operate at a full clip for the next day or until they get it fixed up or something like that. But I think the corollary here for all of us is we just have to control it guys. Like, and by, by controlling is you have to set limits. Like for some of you guys, like when you drank a lot in college, you became a jerk. And so now that you have a family and kids, you don't need to drink like that. Like you've set limits, you've set parameters, right? Any of you that dealt with any type of serious addictions. And I know there's a lot of guys out there in my podcast, cause you tell me about it. Like you set parameters and limits around your life. You know, maybe you're living in an accountability type of setup to where you're not going to get around those things that are really hurting you or the people around you. Right? So that's just kind of the deal is like, you've, you've got to have controls over it. And if you, if you feel like you're out of control there, there is technology to help you stay off of your technology. I've heard a lot of people that they have, uh, these blockers that, you know, if you're on social media during work and it's like affecting your ability to get work done that you can actually block certain apps on your phone or certain websites on your browser during certain times of the day. So block them during work hours. Uh, if you have family time every night from like seven to nine o'clock or something like that, that you, you put those blockers up then. So uh, you know, if you have to look up something on social media, you have to basically get rid of this app, which is like a, a pain in the butt. But I guess in the event of an emergency, which I don't know what kind of emergency would mean that you need to get on Twitter really, really fast and check something, but that's just something you can do. So just make sure you can set limits and parameters. All right. Next question. What about body weight only versus basic dumbbells exercises? Okay. So this one's pretty easy guys. It's like, Whatever you like, whatever you do that keeps you from being fat and worthless, like do that. Like 
there's so many different philosophies out there on different workouts, right? There's CrossFit people that you're doing CrossFit or you're basically not in shape or you got to be a super ultra marathoner or you're not really doing it right or only barbell stuff or, hey, just do body weight. That's all you need. Just do some hot yoga. Who freaking cares, man? Like, just do what you like to do. Do something that's enjoyable. Do something that's safe. So, but in terms of this question, like, you can get a lot of value out of body weight only workouts, right? A lot of value. I think most of my Tuesday workouts that we post on our Instagram, most of those are, are body weight. Because I know a lot of you guys don't just have a gym in your garage like I do. Like, and so if you don't do that, or if you're in one of those Globo gyms that you can't even like move through because there's so many people when you're trying to work out, like, you know, maybe it's hard for you to do a bunch of barbell stuff. You know, some Globo gyms won't even let you deadlift. So it's just kind of how it goes. And yeah, so basic dumbbells, that that's great. Like if you get a good workout with dumbbells, that's great. If you're if you're a kettlebell guy or girl, fine. Like just just do whatever is gonna keep you from being out of shape. Like do whatever it takes to keep you cultivating that physical resilience. Okay. Next question. Do you see a parallel with the liberalization of our current culture and the trends within the modern church structure? I think this is a really good question. And and yes, I I certainly believe that the liberalization and kind of the left-leaning side of our culture is really having an impact and an effect on the modern church, right? And just look at it this way. So I'm a millennial. I'm 31 years old. And so I'm, I guess I'm an old millennial and there's like young millennials. So, uh, millennials kind of make up the majority of the workforce now. Like they, they definitely do. And millennials tend to ping a little bit more liberal than conservative, even though in, in the last year or so, that's kind of, kind of coming back to the center, but it's still definitely more left leaning. Um, and millennials make up a majority of mega church staff. So if you think of your mega churches around your area, like millennials are making up the majority of that staff and, you know, most miniature churches or smaller, more traditional churches, they're kind of borrowing or slash stealing from the mega church playbook. Right. And so the modern day church has been downstream of culture for a while now. And so is our politics, but it's downstream of culture. And so you have these millennials that have had, they've had helicopter parents, you know, they lived, they grew in the, up in the generation where everybody got a trophy. We've got to protect these kids. We can never let them, you know, uh, experience, you know, negativity. We can never let them experience failure or anything like that. And then, you know, they're, they go to these colleges where there's pretty much everyone on the staff, especially in the social sciences, they're all left leaning. So there, there's no conservative thought. There's no right leaning thought. There's certainly not a Christian thought being brought in unless you went to a, a Christian school or something like that. And even at Christian schools, it's, it's maybe a coin flip, but uh, it, it's kind of an issue there. So we are seeing a liberalization of churches. And if you think about the, the big churches, so think of your mega churches and I'm not going to say any by name. I don't need anybody writing me an angry email because I mentioned their church or something like that. But think of the big ones. Most of these are gracey churches, like uh, very, very grace-filled churches, right? So think about grace and truth, right? So you think more traditionally, some of the more traditional churches, it's a lot about the truth, like truth and justice. That's what they want to do. Whereas some of the more wee churches, they're just very much so like, ah, grace, 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 everything's grace without the truth, right? That's kind of the thing that millennials like to hear, right? They they like to hear that they can have grace for, for anything that goes on and that there's no judgment, like at any point. Like those are the things that make them feel fuzzy and and warm and comfortable. It makes them feel like they're back in T-ball, right? Things just kind of work out. I mean, if you go back to episode 14 of my podcast, so that was the review I did of Matt Chandler's newest book called Take Heart. And just kind of talked about how, you know, we're in a post-Christendom society and the the church has thrived the most in its history when it was on the fringes. And so these are things that are are very important. But um, the parallel that we're seeing with modern church structure is it's appealing to the masses and the masses are leaning more liberal. Right. That's 
That's pretty much the most cogent way you can say it, and there's not really a way that you can argue against it. So if you're going after things from a more liberal perspective, that's just kind of what's going to end up happening. And so uh, the only way that we're going to see this change, I guess, is if we see a big shift in uh, thinking from the next generation, so Gen Z. There's some statistics out there and there's some uh, people that have like thought about what's going on with Gen Z, but they can't really peg what type of church this is going to, or not what type of church, but what type of group this is going to be, like how they're going to vote, how they're going to think. So it's kind of to be determined, but the, the more that we stay downstream from culture, the more we're just going to reflect it, obviously. Let's go on to the next question here. How do you feel about people who stream church on television and never make their presence consistent at church? So this is a good question. And so we're, we're talking about kind of being downstream of culture. But here's the thing is, is I don't have a problem with online church. Like I, I really don't like, I think it's actually pretty, pretty incredible. There's a lot of ministries that use church online very effectively. Um, and you know, this shows that churches can be on the cutting edge of technology. Like there's a church here locally that, you know, invented the, the Version Bible app. And I think they were one of the first to market, if not the first to market on, you know, having church online. And they've gifted that technology to a bunch of different churches uh, around the world. And so it kind of shows that they're staying relevant. But guys, don't fool yourself. I mean, communities don't occur by accident. So can you be a part of a real online community? Like, sure, absolutely you could, you know, but can you be a part of a real online community with little effort? Like, no, not really. Like, you really can't. So I know there's a lot of these churches that they try to create, you know, home groups or, you know, whatever they're calling their their community group or whatever they're calling it. And they, they do it via online means. But there's still that disconnect. Like, you have to connect with people, right? Yeah, In person, face to face. Like, those are things that you need to do. And so, but here's the other thing about it. And again, I'm talking to myself here. There was a stretch when my wife and I were going to a local church here and there are uh, two campuses of this church. This is a multi-site church. There are two campuses that are within 15 minutes of our house in either direction, right? One West and one East. And there were a lot of weeks when we would just say, "Mm, I don't really want to get dressed and showered up and all that. You just want to watch it here, (laughs) right? So we were just basically checking the church box without leaving our couch which is convenient, which is pretty cool. But at the same time, we weren't developing community. And that's what the church is, the capital C church. It's not a building, it's a people. So yeah, you know, if you're watching church online, especially if you're if it's not your home church and you're just kind of listening in, like that's fine, it's totally fine. But if if it's part of your community, like that's, a, that's what the church is, is just think about these, these towns uh, back in the day where there was just one church. So there wasn't church shopping. You weren't like, ah, I'm going to go try the Presbyterian church down the street or, oh, there's two non-denominational churches down, uh, down the other way. And they've got two different worship services. So I can go to the one that, you know, fits my personality better. Like there was none of that. You just went to your local church and you served in it. Right. So I just think about it from that point. You got to get plugged in at some point. All right, guys, last question here. How do you read all the books that you read? I heard you mention you you read digital. I'm a huge physical book lover. I love flipping the pages and holding the physical thing uh, that have completed or will complete. Weird, but I even like the smell of them. If you read digital, what do you like to read on and what pros and cons do you see? Okay, so kind of a a longer question, but, you know, just kind of gets back to how I read so many books. And here's the thing, guys, is I, again, I don't read that many books, right? I'll likely read somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 books this year. And some of you just heard that and you're like, how is that even possible? And then other guys, you know, there are guys that, you know, read 50, 75, hundred plus books a year and they're like legit reading them. They're not just skimming them. Um, and here's the thing is out of those 30 books, maybe one or two of those will be actual physical books. 
And it's usually because maybe the book isn't uh, available in an e-version or I got it as a gift or something like that. Um, but I read almost exclusively, clearly, on, on digital. And I do that for a lot of different reasons. So number one is they're cheaper than physical books. So if a brand new physical book is 30 bucks, you know, uh, the e-version might be 13 bucks or, or something like that. Like it's just, they're not very expensive, but also I can read them on any of my devices. So I'm a Mac guy. So I have a MacBook pro, I have an iPad and I have an iPhone. And so, uh, it's just easy that I can read it on any of those devices. Um, and another reason is just because this way, because I read digitally, I always have my books on me, right? So here's the thing. If I'm waiting in the lobby for a meeting or if I'm waiting, you know, get my oil changed or something like that, you know, I've got 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, maybe a half hour. Well, I've got my books right there in my pocket so I can just read my books and just go on. So it's not like, oh shoot, I left my book on, you know, my, I don't know. I left, I left it at home. I left it in my office at home or I left it in the car or something like that. And now I can't read or something like that. So, uh, but the thing I get more reading done because my books are just on me. Right. And the same thing is true as I do most of my reading at night after my wife goes to bed. And so you know, I'm sitting there and I don't want to have like a book light on or a flashlight or something like that. I can just read right from my phone and it's just right there. The other thing is it's really easy to make highlights in, in an ebook. Uh, and nothing drives me more crazy that when I borrow a book from somebody or get it from the library and someone's got all their highlights and their notes in there, it's just like, dang it. Like, I don't want to know what you thought was important. Like I'm trying to figure out what I think is important. So that's kind of distracting to me. So, uh, and I don't want to ruin my books that way. Like outside of textbooks, like I can't stand writing in a book myself. I just, it sullies it in some way. And so I just don't like doing that. Uh, the other thing I, I really like about reading on eBooks is the search capability. So, I mean, just think about if you've ever had a moment where you're trying to recall a story from a book, but let's say it's like a big book and you're like, man, I don't really, you know, I don't really even remember what chapter it was. Maybe it's years later and you're trying to remember. Well, I can just go into the search function within my ebook. I, I read it on iBooks. And if I'm like, oh man, it was a story about, you know, a lobster. And then you just type it in there. It's like, boom, it just brings up the page number, uh, all the pages where lobsters are mentioned. And then you can find it there. So it's just very easy, very functional that way. Um, and here's the other thing is physical books just take up a crap ton of space, right? If any of you have like libraries at your house or bookshelves full of books and you've moved, you realize it's like, well, uh, I have all my things, which makes up about half of what I'm going to have to move because I have all these freaking books. And so um, the thing is, we have a big bookshelf at my house and it's full up. Um, and I just couldn't imagine getting another bookshelf and weighing that down and having even more stuff. I mean, just think about if you need to take off in a hurry, I mean, how many of your books can you take with you? So the, the only con I, I potentially see is if someday Apple's bought out by a larger corporation and that company just decides that, you know, iBook libraries need to go away. It's like, oh, iBook libraries just don't exist anymore. So that's really the only thing I can think of that's a con from my perspective, like, which I don't think is very much of a con. Like, I don't think anyone's buying out Apple. And I certainly don't think, cause there are people that have thousands and thousands of dollars worth of iBooks. Uh, I just don't think that's really going to happen. So, uh, and I, the thing is, is, I'm sure there's really other good reasons, but those are really the main ones for me. But the thing about it is in terms of how I'm able, able to read so many books, like in terms of how you would define so many, I can really sum it up in one word guys. And that's discipline. Like, Almost without fail, I read at least some portion of my book that I'm reading at the time every day. And every now and then I'll, I'll do two books at once and just kind of switch back and forth. But I usually do it right before bed, like I said. Um, and I'm not the kind of guy that can just, you know, my wife's, you know, out with friends on a Friday night and, you know, I'm going to come home from work and I'm just going to read an entire book. Like just sit by the fireplace and get a good cup of coffee and read a book. Like I can't do that. Like, 
most of the time, if I'm reading for more than 30 minutes, like I'm just like, ah, I got to do something else. I got to like get up and, you know, jump up in the air or something like that. So I just can't pay attention that long. So, um, I just have to do a little every day, every now and then I'll, I'll go on this marathon. You know, it's normally if I'm got three or four chapters left in a book, I'll really like try to sprint through the ending and, and kind of get the gist of what's going on in the book. But that that's really how I get so much stuff down. So for a lot of you guys, uh, I mean, again, you haven't really set a goal around reading. So you just kind of read here or there. So you'll start a book and you won't finish it, or you'll just read a book or two in a year and you're not really getting, uh, getting a lot out of it. And guys, I haven't heard a guy yet that's literally described to me such a busy schedule that they couldn't fit in reading. And if you do feel that way, like try, try doing eBooks, right? Again, like I said, you find times during the day where you're sitting on the crapper or you're, you're waiting for something, or you, maybe you're in, you know, bumper to bumper traffic and you know, you're going to be stuck there for a while, you know, pull the book out of your pocket and, you know, get after it. So guys, those are uh, all the questions for today. So again, thank you so much for sending me those questions. If you do have any other questions, um, like I said, respond on social media to any of our posts or send me a email at info at undaunted life. So before I let you guys go, um, I just want to point out uh, with the quick resilience boost that again, we are a men's ministry. Our mission is cultivating manly resilience. And we specifically do that by providing content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So our quick resilience boost today is going to be a mental resilience boost. And so I heard a podcast recently that was really, really good, right? Just, I, I've shared it with a lot of people and I've talked about it a lot. So, uh, the Joe Rogan experience podcast. So, uh, the JRE podcast, you can find that really anywhere. It's one of, if not the biggest podcast on the planet. And so episode 1109, yeah, he's done a lot of episodes, but one, one, zero nine. So this was an episode he did with Matthew Walker. So he's a professor of neuroscience and psychology at the university of Cal Berkeley. Um, and so he's, a guy that really has done a lot of study around human sleep science. And it's a, it's a two hour long episode. You can listen to it at two times speed. Both of these guys talk pretty slow, but man, just a super interesting podcast. Like as soon as you get done with it, you're going to think to yourself, man, I've got to like go to sleep right now, or I'm going to die. Like it's just really, really incredible stuff. So I think that would be a very interesting thing to a lot of you guys, because you know, the point that was made here is most guys think about their health. They think about diet and exercise, but there's a third thing and that's sleep recovery, right? So diet, exercise, and sleep, they're all equally important. So I think you guys will dig it. So thank you again for listening in guys, please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google play and refer your friends to listen and share all this on social media. If you tag us in it, we'll be sure to find it and give it a like guys. If we deserve a five, star review. We currently are five star rated. Keep leaving us reviews. So don't just hit the five stars, leave us a quick line or two. Let us know how this is going. Uh, This is going to continue to grow. And so we want you guys to be a part of that. And again, I'm booking speaking engagements for 2018. So if you want me to come speak to your group, make sure to shoot us an email. Our website is www.undaunted.life. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Undaunted Life and facebook.com backslash Undaunted Life. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.